and welcome to this week's groaning dessert trolley of military toy soldiers related conversation. It's the full seven people back again this week for episode 65, I've checked, and that's the right number, of the madaxman.com podcast. We're here with our normal bunch of painting chat, we're admitting what we bought this week. We also introduce a brand new feature in the amazing audio shape of I'm sorry I think you're an ass," which is coming up later. We have a long old chat about morale rules, we also talk about what we played, Obviously, lots of stuff about painting, but the best news is Tamsin is back at the painting table. So there's actually something of educational value to those of you who are looking to do more painting. So sit back, enjoy the podcast. This means war. Well, look, is this is this 63 64 65 64, I'm 64 unless i sneak out another one this week so maybe it's 65 that's that's pretty good but you know the increasingly popular um which may or may not be true mad axman podcast hits i think it's 65 this week and we've got the full team of seven here all poised and and eager all the little windows um there on the screen people look Adam, wake up, wake up. Don't nod off. It's not that late yet. Um, everybody looks thrilled and excited here. And um, who should we... Let's just dive straight into it without the preamble. Let's just go for it. Let's pick the man with a brush in his teeth in a kind of feral painting way in a darkened cavern. It's it's Dave up in Harrow. And uh-huh. um, Dave, take the brush out of your teeth. Try not to snap it or something like that. You've not been... Um, undergoing sort of surgery where you've had to kind of bite down instead of do something like that or what what are you painting this week mr saunders um well i've just i'm I'm literally literally just painting some uh battle of boeing um 17th century musketeers and i've just discovered that they've got a load of flash on their shoulder which looks like feathers do you know if it's feathers or flash They've got feathers in their hats. So, I mean, I've been painting loads of these. I've, this, mm. this group I'm doing, like, the first lot, I've got feathers in their big, wide cowboy hat sort of thing. And then I've just discovered they've got, like, what looks like feathers on their shoulder. And I think it's just flash. It's really weird. So I've got a brush in my teeth because I've got a file in my hand and I'm filing their shoulders. So are, are you utterly confident about this? Is there anybody else on the screen who's got a view on whether... People in the is it the Battle of the Boing? Did yeah. you say? Is it is it I, pronounced I, I that way? The Battle of the Boing. me. Yeah, Battle of the Boing. Battle of the Boing. Boing. Any, anybody else got a view on um, on shoulder feathering? The uh, feathering, apart from the kiwi bird, no. No, exactly. I mean, it, I mean, I've just discovered, and it's like I've actually um, undercoated them and put them onto my little because I paint them individually, and I'm just looking at them now, and I'm just undercoating well just doing a gray jacket onto them gone what's that on their shoulder it looks like it's almost a molding but i think it's just a mold mark it's weird weird as hell could yeah. it be a chip on their shoulder yeah. <laughs> what is it? i mean you know they've got the an ammunition bag slung over their handbag over their shoulder you know normal but on the shoulder you know because they've got the big frilly cuff things yeah hmm They've got all the ruffs and things. They're they're really ruffs, um, but they also had um, a few other bits and pieces there as well, didn't they? I don't know. I really. I, I, I shouldn't have. I, I'm pretty sure that certainly they shouldn't have anything sort of feathery on the shoulders. 
Yeah, but some of them had the, you like know, the parrot, um, maybe oh, almost they like the, a the sashes. It is almost you know? like he's got a parrot on his shoulder. I think it's killing dragoons. They went into battle. Yeah, they are with parrots. Yeah, ah, <laughs> that could be it. So, have you checked on the original website? These are these Lurkio figures, did you say? Or? Yeah, they're, they're very good. I mean, I'm not knocking Lurkio figures. These have been very nice casting, and yeah, they're nice to paint and. They take inks and things like that, and they're, they're, they're mm. good figures. But then I've just—it's just literally what it's. But it's not one model; it's one shooting. Oh, I found a picture that does. Have you found? Well, it's got a parrot. Yeah, yeah. They have little uh, ruffle things coming out of their shoulders. Really? Stop filing. Yeah. Uh, oh no, stop that could be filing, disaster. Mr. Mannering. Yeah. Uh, is, is it a specific today. unit, or were they all kind of yeah, parrot Regiment shoulders? Yeah, Regiment Douglas. The regiment do Douglas was that or of yeah. Douglas? Wow, that's um. Well, we've learned something. This is very early in the podcast to have actually learned yeah, something. I mean, I'm literally this is literally as I've sat down here and thought. Well, I've just I'm, sent it to you, Dave. I've just blocked in their uh, jackets. They, thought, they have um, like white ruffers and red ruffs. It's it's almost like um, you know how the admirals have the sort of like yeah, the, yeah, exactly. the gold that hangs down. Okay, but these are like look like they're cloth. Brilliant. Okay. Well, they've probably like got an empty some glove, empty glove stapled to their shoulders. There you go. You've probably got yeah. some Ulsterman Ulst marching bands outraged that yeah, you would mock their guys. uniforms with parrots. And some are, some of the others have like overhangs, you know, like, think 1980s uh, suits, but without it uh, properly hanging on. Yeah, exactly. Is that... oh, that's exactly <laughs> what it looks like. It's, it's, um, well, okay. So uh, here's another one. So, how many of these little red people have you managed to do this week, then, Dave? If you're doing them individually, um, they're not red because um, it's, a, it's a commission, actually. Which is yeah. I, uh, regiment regiment Douglas would be grey because it was French regiment. Uh, well, actually, um, so I thought the Battle of the Boing was uh, between the English and the English, or the English Irish against the English Protestants. Uh, they had all sorts of playing in there. That the uh, Williamites army, and I've, I've actually done some research, were mostly Danish, uh, Dutch, and Huguenot. Mm -hmm. So, do, um, do their accents change the way you paint them then? Or, well, no, the person who's asked me to paint these has said, you know, he wants them to be Danish, Dutch, and uh, Huguenot, so he can use them in uh, League of Augsburg in Europe and things. So, like you've that. got to paint them very tall and blonde. Yeah. yeah, something like that. No, no, so, the, the, so, um, Smoking a spliff or something. Yeah. <laughs> great. Eating bacon. Yeah, yeah, eating a lot of bacon. Bacon. You can hose a grey with, uh, pardon my French, but uh, different cuffs and collars. Right. <laughs> and, uh, and you can tell that at 15 mil scale, yeah? Danish, the Danish. Wow, that's detailed painting. The Danish are multicoloured. They can be... Uh, blues, uh, reds, but I'm not doing the red one because that looked like the English. Uh, various, uh, I'll go like a, a sort of light, light green. Anyway, so they're, they're like nice colour. And um, the Dutch have got a really weird guard unit, but I'm going to do that last. But they're fun. I'm, I'm really enjoying it. And the, the research is good. It's a good laugh. Well, wow. Okay. And, and you've got sort of Stygian darkness behind you, um, and, unless the lighting's just gone a bit weird. So it's just a little pool of light on um, on the painting table. Have you been totally focused on these guys then, or have you done any of your own, anything else has kind of slipped into the table? 
the 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 feudal uh, medieval Spanish are completely finished. Of that order we did with Legia um, Eroica, I now have six uh, crossbowmen, three officers, and two knightly buglemen who will probably never get used. So that, that's literally that whole army painted. How are the wow. Franks going? What, what, what? How are the Franks going? Uh, they, they, they've been bucketed. Um, they're, they, they're back in the drawer, in the busy uh, drawer of uh, the mountain. Oblivion. Yeah. I, I do occasionally keep thinking, could I do with some Frankish foot? Because um, for my close formation kind of hairy people who fight with the Romans, um, I always tend to use sort of early Gauls and stuff like that. But um, I'm not sure it's um, it's the idea. Are you waving a Spanish flag at us there then, Dave? Yeah, it's pretty good. Looks like El Cid. Um, I can tell. It's, it's, it's a very fast-moving fast -moving Charlton Heston being waved at us there. Or something like that okay so um so we've learned something amazingly about um yeah. fluffy epaulets and the fact that um there was a lot of bacon eating and splish smoking in the battle of the boyne um as well which is is remarkable so um i think that takes us seamlessly round the thing to to, to for no reason at all for, for adam um hello have you, hello what, what are you up to um what's has it been have you decided yet whether you're going to call them dacians or dacians no, no, I just. No. Oh. Oh. Yeah, um, Dacia. It depends whether right. they've got cars, doesn't it? Latte, latte. I'm never quite sure, to be perfectly honest. Actually, you're anticipating no. my what a noises section, so go, keep going. Potato, potato. But no, I am still um, painting them. I've sort of done most of the third batch and turning into a bit of a marathon. There's quite a few of the base. Like, I'm more than halfway there, and I'm not using a huge amount of my time during the week to do it but they are slowly getting there but there's they're taking a lot longer than the romans because a there's just more of the buggers and b when i did the romans i started off by undercoating them spray painting them gunmetal so that was all the armor done and the helmets sort of like all the sort of like that color armor done so that's actually half the figure painted whereas these ones there isn't one main color so i've gone with white because that just gives a nice bright background and again, I'm not using fancy techniques, but just putting the coverage on the 25 mil figure takes a while. So it's kind of plodding on and I'm getting there. But once these are done, I'm going to give myself because I was thinking of doing some Germans, but I just know I'm going to do something different when, when they're done in the in the next six months or so. I'm trying to think, did that did those cavalry that um, we kind of swapped, did they hit your post box this week or, um, or last month before? Last yeah, Monday. Oh, you just got, got them, haven't you? Yeah. Yeah, I just yeah. got them. Um, there go. It's like I've got, I've nearly done a third batch of the fur. I've got the fourth batch to do, and then them cavalry and baggage and stuff. So it's, it's, it won't take, it's probably done before I get a chance to play with them. Um, so it, it's all kind of fine, but it's um, grinding on. You know, it's, it's a bigish 25 mil army. So there's lots of paint to go on to lots of figures. And you were, um, are you basically you were doing a total, Adam? Um, this is great radio, by the way. Approximately, um, yeah. um, so don't take your socks off, don't take your socks off. That's not good. About 30, 35, <laughs> something like that. Yeah, but it's right. fine. It's, and you uh, were... I mean, I'm, I'm sounding really sort of like despondent about it, but it's good. They're coming along, they're coming along at the speed that I'm painting them because I don't paint 
huge amounts during the week. So I'm actually quite pleased with them. It's all good, but it's, it would be nice to do something else. But I'm going to have the discipline to get the army done. And, um, and speaking of, of discipline, you were trying to make a sensible and limited purchase of about four different types of terrain and baggage animals as well last week that we were, we were talking about. Did, um, did you end up managing to control your, um, your clicking and shopping influences? And I haven't got around to doing that yet because like, I, wow. I would usually do that sort of thing in the evening and I've just been busy in the evening. So I haven't had a chance to sit down and do sort of like war gamey computery type things. So I haven't got, haven't got around to doing it. Okay. All right. So um, another, another straightforward week then. Um, this means war. Let's flip around the screen to um, Simon. Um, you, you're there on screen in front of a, a bit of a mini Stonehenge by the looks of it. But um, I, and I know that there's. It sounds like another order has um, has dropped through your your post your post box. Yeah, so trying to be environment environmentally friendly. friendly uh, we've been leveraging um, uh, delivery systems, so combining your order and my order. So um, Pendragon just arrived today. So some more paints. Seem to be going through quite a few paints at the moment. Don't know why, but um, <laughs> going through quite a few bottles at the moment. Um, the biggest thing I've been uh, finishing up this week has been almost all of the um, Renaissance Ottoman Turk cavalry. So I've got eight bases of heavy cavalry, the Kapokuli, the, uh, the, um, the nobility with lances, banners, and stuff like that, three generals, and the last of the Janissary units. So they've all been now painted and got their banners on. Just have to do the basing this week. And then those mounted done. What I've got left is just the medium cavalry who will all be slightly underdressed compared to the nobility, just so you can really see guys with armour, guys with really big armour, and medium cavalry with no armour, but they're slightly bigger than light horse. Did you, um, did you manage to keep that momentum with doing simple to paint but effective patterns on uh, that you started with the nobles you know sort of collections of little spots and things like that did you did you manage to keep the variety going over eight bases or um oh, how, how was that side of it Would... um i've kept a, kept a consistent um design all the way through so it's either you know uh, four dots to give like a, a diamond on some of the horse's flanks or a couple of um uh, diamonds just actual lines with a couple of dots either side, just little chevrons and different patterns. So they are 15 mil. So uh, unless you get really close, you're not going to be able to spot the difference. Um, but when you sort of look at it, you can it'll give you that nice effect of quite interesting looking cavalry, rather than a guy with a big horse and a uh, um, red barding. So yeah, it's some other stuff. Okay, and um, and anything else interesting kind of in the post that, that's slip through the net this week or are you just waiting on the pendragon stuff we've just been waiting on the pendragon stuff so i'm trying to be good at the moment but yeah <laughs> um so i'm normally trying to save my money up for we would have gone to salute in april so that's where i'd spend yeah quite a bit of money mm. for the year's supplies so i'm going to save myself up to do the same thing but just done by um, um delivery anyway Okay, that, that makes sense. Well, let's let's keep going around then. Um, so, Tamsin, now that you're um, you're 
you're marooned in London for a while, um, unless you've you've managed to do some very effective internet shopping and um, and bought another house in the last week. Um, yeah. Have you have you what has come back out of the the packaging crates and made it onto the painting table? Well, I did say last week, I think, but I'd started painting six mil ACW cavalry. Uh, got the horses done. Just doing a bit here and there. Got the horses. Horses finished. I so it's just riders to do. There's about 100, 105 figures on the table. That's a lot. It's a lot, but they're small. They're small. Yeah, I realise that. I I I once drove myself nearly mad painting a Confederate six mil army. Um, but you, are you Union or Confederate figures? Union at the moment. Yeah, well, that, that then similar, that kind of similar number of Confederate cavalry to. Yeah, because that, they're a lot more varied, aren't they? You've got to sort of vary the yeah. colour of the uniforms and the hats and all that kind of stuff. That's enough. Yeah, that doesn't take. That's not too, too, too much a, a problem to do. Like. Yeah. Well, what's your kind of mass technique then with, um, with six mil ACW stuff? Because there's, I guess it's well, I do know, you know, with six mil, it's halfway between technique and painting style, isn't it? It's it's a sort of strange blend of. Of doing things a bit differently how do you approach them from from the base layer up it's mostly so go with a slightly brighter base coat vernal wood for 15 mil and then use a washed dark eyed so do you actually you know base undercoat them effectively in a color in blue is that your base coat or is there um a layer below I, I, that well it's the cavalry so i actually did the cavalry primed from white the horse colors done at the tack for the bridles and so on the saddle blankets uh, so it's just on sponsor the riders now uh, do they um at six mil have visible um sort of straps or whatever the word is reins and yeah. harnesses because i'm not sure many yeah. minded when i did six mil <laughs> yeah for backers ones do i you can actually make out i de details of the bridle so you've got the, the bit which goes for goes around the neck bit mm. which goes down the side and then the over nose band part of it and the reins. So, good yeah. God, that's better than some 15s that I've got, I think. Um, where you can't tell that very often. Okay, so you've, you've done a what a panoply of different horse colors. And yeah, please tell me Mostly that you've not days, done them with like some layering and some stuff. Black, some greys, a couple of whites. Yeah. And then have you done that with washes or have you actually done layering on the, the horses? Base coats and then, then appropriate washes to. Uh, that's reassuring i thought you were going to say you were doing the foundry three layer system on um on six on mil, six mil no. <laughs> no no not on six mil if they were nine you might have thought about it but um yeah, no i might yeah. have thought about well doing two layers so yeah well three quite layers, possibly with a wash base wash highlight maybe does that count as three layer certainly yeah. not no okay all right I, I can let you off on that and any of the the bigger scale toys have made it onto um Onto the deck, or has it just been no, getting a little chat? No, out? I always like, uh, only ever have one bit at one project out on the table at a time. Good God, wow, <laughs> yeah, that's How strange, that's unusual. All right, yeah, <laughs> okay, yeah, so I might, might finish one batch and then switch to a batch from a different project, but okay, all right, well, let's um, let's let's keep chugging around then, Andy. Um, Obviously, you know, it sounds like your washing cycle, spin cycle is finished. And, um, and there's a, yes. a small right. moment of drama there. I think, thank goodness, is a very polite way of doing it. I think um, we do have to 
to tick a box to say that this this podcast is no longer suitable for children as a result of your um, <laughs> was it ever Andy yeah. you're not on mute instant from earlier on yeah. in the um, the podcast unless I cut that out like we could always use it as the after thing couldn't we um <laughs> just just clip it in just just one little section maybe yeah. do a repeat but um but what, but what have you been an appropriate um, warning of course yeah of course yeah what, what have you been up to this week uh well the last of my renaissance stuff arrived which was the big the heavy artillery piece from museum and that turned out to be seven 70 millimeters long which i found quite quite surprisingly large for a model piece of kit so i've put it on an 80 by 40 base and um i sent you a picture of it it's got six guys and a pile of cannonballs and it's got one nice figure from i think it's uh blue moon sort of on his knees chipping away at the cannonball to sort of like smooth the um face of it so i've got six guys and a barrel and a bunch of cannonballs so it, it can sort of double as an army base and that's the end of the uh latch neck stuff all completely done every single figure so i'm very happy about that and so i'm back now to doing the uh skeleton cavalry and i'll show you one here if you can see it but uh it's ah. basically dry brush and um uh, highlights and basically each cavalry unit's gun and a slightly different colour of uh, plumes, cloaks, and shields all matching. So I've got yeah, a red so unit. Skeletons are not big on uniforms, really, are they? That's always been a, a feature of skeletons. Um, yeah, well, they hang off a bit, don't they, really? Let's be yeah. honest. Yeah. yeah. Well, let's face it, my skeletons, they're not very big on clothes. No, no exactly. <laughs> no, nobody makes pants that size, as they say. In, um, One of the in, supermodels of uh, skeleton. Yeah, yeah it just Andy, drops straight off them. Yes, Andy, looking at the pictures of your gun that you shared, it reminded me of uh, an old film I watched. It was uh, Pride and Passion, where the, the um, Royal Navy's bringing a large siege gun across Spain and they're all dragging it across oh. and everything else. Oh, God, I remember that one, yeah. Well, the gun. Oh, yeah. Was that called the that based on the gun by C.S. It's called yeah. the gun. Yeah, yeah, but so, it's just like it's just a great big gun that you've got, and it just reminded me of that film. I remember watching it. Yeah, as a kid. well, when, when I ordered it, I didn't realise it was such a, a monstrous piece of kit. But uh, you, you, you need know, a couple of mules on, alongside dragging it. Yeah, well, they won't fit on the base. That's the thing. It was seventy millimeter base. It's just so big that you just can't fit much else on it. Did so, you uh, did you place on. an order? For with museum for one gun, no, that that was when I bought oh. the uh, Thracian cavalry. It's a big gun. Ah, <laughs> okay. Yeah. So there was uh, more. Yeah, that's right. And then I've I've um I've ordered some more stuff this week from Pendracken for it's the um, special. It's an excuse to get more. Yeah, no, this is for the um uh I, I, somebody put on online about the the Lardies um O Group battalion scale rules. So I watched the videos and quite impressed by the idea so i've got most of the kit i need but i need some more british infantry to make up a proper uh battle group under, under their rules so i've i've ordered some of that and a few other bits from pendragon as well and um that should be turning up sometime reasonably soon yeah they're normally pretty quick at um at getting stuff out the door aren't they pendragon i think that well the, the, the email says um you know within, within a, they normally process it within about a week and i ordered i ordered some paras because i had because jeff Jeff Punchin, who I'm obviously pleased to know is, is mm. on the mend, um, although he's still in hospital, uh, he he gave me some British Paris. He had surplus 10 mil ones. And so I thought, well, I'll build those up as well. But um, most of the guys appear to be um, in helmets rather than uh, berets. 
I think we'll, we'll come back to that later on. I think in um, in, in a new feature that we're no introducing. spoiler, just just an observation. No, no, absolutely. I think you may be right. That's that's absolutely right. I'm no, just well, laying um, the ground. I'm just laying the ground for this special feature that you might that you might. No, do. It's good. It's almost as if we um we discuss this in advance and plan it, um, or rather <laughs> than just um wing it on the way. But um, in, in it, terms Tim, of, we don't want people to think we planned this thing, do we? No, good God, no. Well, I don't think there is any danger of that, quite frankly. Um, um, but... but yeah, I think the um, the Pendragon stuff and the Ten Mill stuff's been been a big part of my week as well because I I got um I got kind of over intimidated by doing that three-tone stripey i can't believe i've not got an airbrush german camo which is which is still kind of wearing to do it's really good but it takes bloody ages and and i just sort of thought sod it i'll just try and do the british and um component which was just much much easier because it's just kind of one color and and it was the really odd thing that i did do an army and i'd undercoated them in gray but then i was going to kind of coat them in green spray but but I couldn't find any green spray or get hold of any. So I actually painted the damn things in, in British bronze green. So to actually painting the main color on a huge army, I think, Adam, I know exactly what you think but, um, or feeling with yours, but this is just with one color, trying to get decent coverage on um, loads of little tanks. And and I think the thickness of the paint was a real a real challenge because you you end up, particularly with a light gray undercoat, you end up seeing the bits that you missed. So it did take a little bit of going back and forth to do them. But but I think the um the thing with those those um Victrix 10 mil Shermans that we talked about a while ago, having actually finished them properly this week, they're just really good. Um I, you know I, I become more impressed with them the more I do and and the more I compare them to to I think I've got pit head and pendragon ones and um, I think I've got some minifigs ones as well. And those Victory ones just are really good. Um, they they do, you stick them next to any of the Metal Shermans and the Metal Shermans look like they've just gone a little bit soggy, um, I think, which is is kind of weird. But so I've just, but yeah, going back to it, I've got this whole British force with about eight or nine Shermans, a couple of Fireflies, a couple of, um, you know, Tank Hunter things, M10, M18, load of little... Um, scout carriers some other carriers some of the printed butler's printed models trucks that you can see the printing lines on um and and i've just about up finished rebasing just about finished rebasing all of my infantry as well onto 40 by 30s with five or six guys on a on a little base to be sort of like quasi flames of war-esque little kind of half squads um to to do that and um and it's been good to um, it's good to to remember that I've got some of these, and I think I might even try doing um, a kind of little BKC scenario. There's some some scenarios for two by two boards, and I think BKC works quite well for that with its sort of random command thing. Um, and then the other bit that I've or some of the other bits I've been doing this week is the Dacian Dacian heads that that Adam you sent me, and the other bits of um, phalaxes and and the cloaks as well i've kind of got them and cobbled them together with the victrix um peltast bodies and shields to create some thracian peltasts 
So the sort of the Peltast bodies are Greeky type people in little skirts with bare arms um, and you know boots and stuff. And then you stick a, a Dacian head with one of those kind of slightly floppy over caps on it. Um, is that going to work? Possibly not. And and you stick a Peltasty shield on it, and suddenly and and you clip off the the guy's hands and arms at the wrist and glue on um, a phallax and you're pretty much there actually i'm i'm you sound a bit like that kid in toy story the one that lives next door to andy you know morphing toys and cutting bits off them and sticking them back together these are all completely morphed into definitely bits definitely definitely bits but it's um the the only slight bit i'm trying to see if i can use some of the two-handed ones but i think that might be beyond my modeling skills because the pieces just don't quite fit together um i've had a go at one but if you look quite closely he's got a very very strange um i think right arm that, that doesn't really work at all um but but so if you handle with the, the ball, weather, be a penalty yes something like that yeah <laughs> but with the um but with the weather being suddenly snowy again it's like i i kind of got this half dozen ones that i've done a quick test run on and and i'm kind of keen to try and paint them up properly but but it's just not spraying um weather at all and it's probably not going to be spraying weather for another week or 10 days so they're going to kind of sit there looking at me whilst i try and finish off the rest of possibly that it will put the germans back on um on top of the pile to um to get done in in that kind of second world war thing and then i've also nearly finished doing my or rebasing all of my 15 mil russ and, and vikings which um which got stuck i've just done all the dry brushing on the basing and i've put some totally well some different flags on them i had metal flags that i painted on the old set that just looked a bit rubbish and i i think i found some sort of computer game that had um banners for different factions online i probably on pinterest and i just downloaded and printed off a whole load of of these banners um where's it got yeah you can just about see that there um like this one in the middle they've got little vikingy type designs on and my new thing is to to create a sort of a cross um on a long pole and by gluing two little bits of plastic at, at right angles to each other and then wrap some um, black cotton around it paint it up and it, it becomes one of those sorts of flagpoles with a crossbar and then you you just stick a horizontal banner on on the front of it and it, it looks kind of quite effective i think i did it for some some crusader infantry a while ago so now a lot of my vikings and russ have got these sort of hangy down um crossbar type banners and um and and they'll be done um quite soon with a bit of luck and then um so yeah it's been been sort of prepping and and preparing for some of the other stuff but getting the brits done and managing to sneak out and do a bit of matte varnishing although um apparently testers dull coat i saw online has stopped it's just stopped they're not they're not going to be producing it anymore which could be like catastrophic really well i'll have to find another another best ever matte varnish and it's it's kind of i think it's sort of starting to seep into some of the corners of the internet awareness of this so there'll probably be much wailing and gnashing of teeth or there'll be a run on it or or something like that it is really sad to hear that Caster's Dolco is no longer anymore because I remember when that was first a thing. People would speak of it in whispers as with awe and a sort of a matte varnish that would just make anything matte. And I, when I first tried it, it was just like, that's magical. So it's yeah. like sad. It's like Woolworth's closing. 
and, and imagine how much more time will now be wasted on 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 twitter on facebook on forums on on podcasts when people ask that question of you know somebody comes and goes, what's what's the best matte varnish and normally now that discussion gets closed down within about three replies where people just go well it's testers what mm. that and, and nobody can really argue past that but without that there isn't going to be a kind of a no-brainer everybody agrees winning varnish i would have thought unless tamsin you've you know you've, you've got something that you know, you buy in Poundland or import from Guatemala or something. No, no I, I'd say I've never tried te- testers. I don't tend to use aerosol varnishes. Yeah. Best I've come up with for that was I think it's the Gale- I Windsor Newton Galeria Professional. Yeah, Galeria. I've got the Windsor Newton one. Well, I think okay. Townsend could do a t- podcast on this called The Lady Varnishes. Oh, it's another good opportunity for the um, tumbleweed. tumbleweed sound effect there. That's good. Yeah, yeah. I think we're almost all doing it ourselves now, aren't we? That's uh, that's quite frightening. So, yeah, yeah. That, I don't that even that we dubbed it. Get that. Yeah, it's that quick. That yeah. quick. Amazing. But but no. So that that's been um, been my kind of week. And I think some point possibly, if if the snow peters out a bit. By the weekend, I might do a, a dubious handoff of um, of some of the stuff that I've ordered that's come through to Simon's house that um, that will then just give me a little kickstart onto onto doing the rest of it. Yes. But kind of to round us out, Peter, you look like you've. Um, you've changed your background now and either you've got some cacti growing out of the top of your head or that is a picture of wing tazars um from a historical painting going on there so um which well, which one to of the series? Down, is it I, cowboys or cowboys or wing tazars uh well it could be the cacti growing out my head actually with the uh, lockdown waiting for a haircut but uh, it's the wing tazars you lot persuaded me that uh, i need that to get haircut, some wing tazars haircuts i think i saw saw that i was it Gary Oldman in Dracula. <laughs> Maybe we can have a Patreon. We can have a Patreon to club together to buy you a set of clippers or something like that. Like, uh, if anybody out there is, um, it, we'll put a picture up. Of no, uh, no we, I've got some clippers. Scared, it's just I won't let children. my family near them. Right. <laughs> right. Well, we, we'll um, we'll have a podcast with your family and we'll come up with a tactic. Um, but, oh, dear God, scary. Yeah, Don't give them ideas. Yeah. I'll wake no, up with bits missing. Um, wing desires. So you lot persuaded me to get them, uh, basically because well, why not? And oh, we um, had to work really hard to do that, didn't we? It was tough, right? wasn't it? You, it was you really did. You, you did. It was. It was a lot of persuading. You know, I had to really twist my rubber arm. Um, Don't so, blame me. I was only following recommendations. It's not a blame culture, Andy. It's just your fault. Okay. Um, so straight question. Marriage. Yeah. Um, wing desires. So, Tim, you sent some nice pictures where they had white feathers. Uh, I found black feathers, and I've also seen red feathers. So, what feathers are, and can I have some gold ones, please? Three units, Peter. Three units. That's the answer, surely. They wear red feathers. Okay. Dave has been inside too long. Anyway, anyone else? (laughs) 
most most of the ones I've seen tend to be like your picture where you've got the the feather support timber, whatever it is, that's done in red, and then the feathers are done in a combination of black and white because then, especially from a 15mm perspective, it pops really nicely and you look and as soon as you see them on the table, you go, they're winged hazards because it's very iconic. Um, you could so do you're like, have a bit of white in then. Yeah. But what you could do, because I know you like your gold, you could have your winged hazard with the general included. You do them with the gold to re really represent the man, the legend with his entourage. They all have the gold and the rest of the, the other units are just with just the red type of combination. I'm going to say on the picture you sent me, Tim, the uh, armor seemed a bit blinging, so uh, I think they're quite suitable for me. Um, no, I think there's quite, you know, if you want bling, Wing Tazars were were kind of the gangster rappers of, um, of yeah, 17th century Europe, bling. I think. Excellent. Now, now's the honest question do they actually play any well uh, in your rule set, Simon? Yes. And do you get loads of them? Um, you don't get loads of them. You only get about... How many have you five. bought, Peter? Let's Sorry, let's stop right there. Oh, How yes, many sorry. have you bought? That's the real question. Um, uh, do, do you get loads of them? <laughs> <laughs> He's looking worried now. <laughs> you can get a maximum of about four bases of winged, full-winged hussars. But what you can then do is you can have what they called faked winged hussars. And the idea behind it was you'd... Um, grab <laughs> like knockoffs from... So you get some scrappy yeah. levy, put them in some yeah. dodgy uh, wing hazard remnants, and so people think they're a wing hazard unit, but they're actually levy, so they're just cheap and cheerful. So that's um, you can get up to six well, on the table, I, I think. I, I, I've got a fair few um, um, painting testers, I'll call them. Oh, okay. right. it's good to have okay. <laughs> How many did you buy, Peter? Uh, enough. <laughs> <laughs> How many did you buy, Peter? Um, it's just there was a few packs and it just seemed yeah. nice. So I, I think I've got enough for about uh, six or no, seven. No, don't, don't, don't say. Right. Next week's quiz question: Which of these is a bigger quantity, Peter's surplus wings as ours or Dave's surplus uh, Egyptian chariots? Yeah. Which is a bigger number? Well, um, <laughs> what you can do though, yeah, and Peter, is you can use your wing hussars obviously for generals. Ah, so that's all right. I'm just going to have loads of generals. Yeah, yeah, the Polish army had 18 generals, um, one for each unit. Yeah, Fantastic. Well, um, my son Nick is on about having a go at painting them, so I'm trying to persuade him to have a go because he, he fancied the idea of it. So it uh, suits his playing style, line up and charge. Yeah, he'll definitely enjoy the aggressiveness of the Polish army. Yeah, walk up, yeah. With all the foot, shoot, wing his eyes, charge, foot then charge in with a big axe and go, I've got, yeah. Polish um, small uh, small food items like you know, deli, salami, hams, and all that, and a big axe. Eat this. Whack! That that's. I had to get the um, rifleman with the axes as well. Yes, you definitely. Oh, very dishes. Yeah, for yeah. sure. I've, I've no idea of the army list in any way, shape, or form. I went along the lines of, "Ooh, that looks cool. I'm having some of that." That's how I design my army list as well. They're shiny. I'll have those. Lots yeah. of shinies. So, yeah, I think they'll suit Nick's playing style of um, line-up, charge, and let's stomp the rest of them. Peter, look at those pictures I sent you of the Polish Military Museum. Because I did. That, that, and then Tim followed up with it. Their original um, uh, Polish winged Tsars in their uniform on, the, on the waxwork horses. Uh, they had a... Um, 
bit of uh, silk, uh, gold uniform, didn't they? They were a bit blingy. <laughs> There's just gold everywhere. You can you can just go big gold. on the gold, I think. It's no good, one's going to have some bling. Yeah. Definitely. You you have the, the, bling. the only computerised war game I tend to play is a thing called uh, Fle- um, it's, uh, Pike and Shot, which is a kind of fog. <laughs> ah! <laughs> and that's got... World of Flynn. No? And the, um, the Winged Desires and those are quite tough. Okay. All right, well, look, that, that almost gets us on to um, onto the subject of what have you played this week? This means war. This means war. All right, well, look, we're, um, we're now onto that section of who's played what this week, and uh, I think I can see a few people waving on screen. So... Um, Let's start as we did before, Mister Mister Saunders. Which which virtual army have you managed to get onto table this week, and and how do you think it went? So um, on Thursday, I played Simon at uh, the AGLG Renaissance game, which Simon's come up with. Yes, and I used uh, Low Country Spanish, which was really good fun because I've never fought with anything like with tercios or anything like that before. So. And uh, I've got a massive win. Quite, oh. good, quite, quite good win, I think. He, he does that to suck you in, and then, and then you'll be stuck doing uh, fog renaissance. He'll just be, you know, it'll be your thing now. Next competition, it's no more ADLG. You're straight up to fog renaissance. Spanish tercios are really good. They're really fun. I like them. Okay. Why do you like them? Now, have you seen that movie with... Um, the Spanish movie that called, I think it's just called Tercio. Yeah. With Aragon. What's it about? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> it's got Aragon. It's got Aragon. Wide, I think. That's what okay. And, um, then on Sunday, was Sunday night? That's last night. Sunday night. Yeah, it was. Yeah. Andy and I played a biblical game and he used his Hebrew army and I used Saitic Egyptian with the hoplites, with the armoured hoplites. And, um, that, was that one of the lists we discussed on the podcast? It was indeed, yeah, it was, yeah. So I gave that a go and um, absolutely stomped the Hebrew army. Ran straight through his heavy chariots with my heavy chariots in oh, well. the blaze of glory. Yeah. And the armoured hot plights managed to beat the um, elite Meshwesh impetuous infantry, which is quite interesting. Well, I suppose if they if they withstand that first um, that first rush, they suddenly get get into a, a war of attrition that they should win, really, shouldn't they? But um, I think it's more a case of if they throw lots of sixes and my opponent rolls lots of ones, they win. <laughs> okay, so that wasn't something we talked about in the podcast when we were talking about list design. Then no. no. Okay, so Andy, what from from your point of view, your your Hebrew meshwesh, was it? Um, or didn't manage yeah, to, to do he, he, Hebrew with Libyan Egyptian allies. And Libyan Egyptian, uh, had, I had four units of elite, heavy, impetuous swordsmen, the meshwesh. Um, and in three combats where they were up, they lost every one. Um, so uh, that, that, turned, that turned sour fairly quickly. And in the meantime, Dave, Dave outdiced me in the fight of the chariots and uh, it all went pear-shaped very very quickly so what which um which of the biblical armies did you use then is that because i've seen there's some biblical armies in um in tabletop simulator is um did you did you manage to find some sort of properish troops or no they were all kind of cobbled together the the, the heavy chariots are basically indians right okay and the um light chariot vision 
Yeah, it's right. called instead of Indian chariots, and I used a bit of Achaemenid and Hellenistic, so you just create a saved object with each command, I think it was. Uh, I was going to say, how hard is it to create a, a unit on that? Well, you don't create the unit, you just copy units from that are already created from different armies. and uh, No, no, well, that's what I mean. Creating a need, new image. You need some unit. proper. You need some proper skills yeah. and a proper bit of software to do it. It's um, it's beyond all of us by quite some margin, and um, you know, I, I've got some time on my hands, and I'm still not going. No, that's not something I want to be having a go at. Really, it's not one of those things you can use Microsoft Paintbrush or things like that. No, you actually need the proper 3D rendering software and skills. <laughs> and maybe maybe even to read the manual it doesn't sound like something you can just stumble through and and copy some code that already exists either it it, it looks like the real deal so it can't um, be a script kiddie you've just got to actually do stuff okay you've actually got to know stuff yeah yeah Is which um something for your children to do for us um i would do but they'd probably hack it yeah <laughs> yeah but I, I've, I've been finding some of the other bits and pieces i think simon i sent you some of the the renaissance stuff um in fact mm. you had a game as well this week um, yeah the only game i had was uh with, against mr saunders um where it was looking all brilliant for me until i started maneuvering and um it was a good way to see what I, a, a slightly more evil player will do and then you expose one of your friends to that evil player <coughs> So you left a flank what, hanging. What, yeah, what, so, yeah. you, you mean the guy who was talking about loving hitting people on the flanks on the last podcast? Yeah. Yeah, so I got a little... Uh, we had... Um, it was a game of around 1600 AD, so they had the the big Spanish tercios, big units, and I brought in the uh, Dutch Rebellion, so it was the first of the Piker shot units. So Musket versus Arquebus, but I had you know, a lot more flexibility. He had the bigger units. And we both had crap mounted, so there was no of the big crassier units yet. It was all still lighter gendarme type of ones. I had a bit more artillery. Dave didn't. Um, and on one flank, my mounted wing pushed off his caracol units, so I thought I had a bit of a run. See um, Dave's artillery units, I thought, I'll have that. And got a little bit too enthusiastic, exposed the flank of the mounted, Dave's mounted, then turned around, charged me, blew through that whole wing, uh, uh, mounted wing, and proceeded to chomp through the rest of the army quite effectively. Masterful use of my cavalry wing, it really was masterful. So that's always good then if um, if you can swing around on a on a wing and do it. So, okay then, well look, I think that's, um, that looks like that's covered off all the, the gaming for this week. This means So look, we're um, we're always keen uh, at episode sixty-five to introduce new features because it's nearly it feels like a decade since we did the thing about Napoleon. I don't think we've come up with anything new since then. But um, but we've got a new theory, and um, and this is a a whole new section on it um, called well, I think, yeah, rather rather than introduce it ourselves, I think I'll just sit back and let the music do the talking. Coming up next on Madaxman Radio, it's I'm Sorry, I Think You're an Arse, the antidote to inform discussion shows. At the piano this week is Scott Joplin, and your chairman is Sir Humphrey Humphreyson. 
Hello and welcome everybody to this week's edition of I'm Sorry, I Think You're an Arse. You join us this week from the Charles Fulbrook Leggett Assembly Hall in Bishop's Itchington in Shakespeare's Warwickshire. Located here in the heart of England, visitors who climbed to the top of a nearby hill are greeted with a view covering seven different counties. And on a clear day, it is said you can sometimes even catch a sight of Birmingham off in the distance. Despite the many prominent warning signs advising against this. So look, so the, the way this works is there's been some stuff that that's been bugging me uh, particularly and I've got a theory about what isn't working and I just want to pitch it to to all of you guys and girls and um, and see if you agree with me really because one thing that that irritates me particularly with doing these um, these 10 mil or rebasing all of these 10 mil British and I've got a lot of um, British paras and I've got the little you know, things that the paras do around they're riding around on motorcycles they've got these really cool jeeps I've got these pit jeeps from Pithead with some really cool guys hanging off the back of them. It's really dynamic and, and British powers. It's Arnhem. It's a bridge too far. You know, you basically you want all of the figures to look a bit like Sean Connery, apart from the ones that look like the other actors who are in it, whose names escape me at the moment. But when I'm going through, you know, I've got a mix of figures from from Pendragon and from Arrowhead, who used to be called Wargame South, and they're really nice little figures. The thing that I can't get my head around is there's probably only two or three of the figures, the poses, that are wearing berets. And these are British paras. And they should be wearing berets, all of them, all the bloody time, really, shouldn't they? Because that's what British paras did. And in the film, that's what you remember. And and the ones which are wearing berets are not doing Sean Connery bash down a door, point a gun at someone's stuff. They're all stood there with either using a radio um, or possibly the driver in a Jeep. They're not the one hanging off the back doing cool stuff. And well, they're not even them. Um, the other thing they're doing is they're standing with their hands on the hips like they could be a commander wearing a beret of a different colour for a different unit, just wearing kind of normal trousers. They're not even in the Paris smock. And, and then I had a look online to see if there's anything else. And, and even in 28 mil or different scales, there are surprisingly few British para figures with berets, given that's the iconic thing. And, and we talked over the last few weeks about museum doing those really big shields and and the um, the for the hoplites, and then doing the hoplites in the and the three hundred dress, both of which are kind of historically a bit nonsense. Well, clearly very nonsense. The three hundred speedos. Um, but that's kind of what you want. And, and that's a manufacturer who's gone, I know there's some sort of history here, but and I'll bend that history a bit because Wargamers want big flat shields to stick transfers on. And they all quite like the idea of the film 300 as well. So I'll create something like that and whack it out. And, and why hasn't anyone else done that for British Paras? Because if I was in, in the British Paras, I'm sure I would want to wear my beret um, as much as possible because it's really cool. And particularly if I'm in a film and because um, that's what they were really it, it was all about film so why don't um, companies make just loads of paras with berets because we just all buy loads of them so so that's my theory and and that's what's been bugging me this week well it occurs to me that if you're a para you you arrive in the battlefield by jumping out of an airplane 
And Andy, that's I good. Imagine... I'm all over you with that one. That's brilliant. That's very yeah. insightful. Yeah. I've got the point it. is, if you jump out, the, out of an airplane wearing a beret, I suspect the beret is going to blow off and you wouldn't have it for very long. Which is, but couldn't you have like a clip or something? Couldn't you, can you clip it to your, your hair or something? Well, or it's, it it, yeah, I think it'd be an arc, Tim. Yeah, you start getting shot enough. Um, I think you'd be quite keen to wear a helmet. Yeah, but how many shots actually hit that bit from just above your eyes to the top of your head that a helmet protects? Well, you lay, you lay down you, on the I, floor, right? Lay yeah. down on the floor, look forwards, right? And your helmet's there. Well, <laughs> enough, the helmet's it, it helmet's a bit they get shot helmets, a lot. Stand in a slit trench with your head just, just above to shoot. It's only going to be your head, head that's up. But, and my but this is the point, though. Up. The paras, because I've seen the rest of the figures, they're not, you know, you don't buy figures for paras in slit trenches. You buy paras, pictures of paras on motorcycles. You buy them running around and you buy them perched on the back of a Jeep, herring oh, that's, around. That's health and safety. If they're on the motorbike, they've got to wear helmets anyway. Yeah. No, that that you know that wasn't in place back in 1944. I don't think it was at all. Um, but why, what, you know, surely they all, and then when they surrendered, they all wore them, didn't they? Because they all, yes. they did have them. It's because they get them taken off them. When they surrender, they take away the helmets and things because they can be used as weapons. Yeah. Because <laughs> all, their, all their bloody red berets got dropped in a separate drop shoot, like the movie. Oh, it was several, that happened, like, there were actually several, kind of, several spy yeah. canisters dropped, like, that were... It's just full oh. of red berets, so they had no... My Reco Squadron... The ones that were in a, in the east of the perimeter, they collected one canister that was full of berets, rank chevrons. Right. So, so we're actually saying then they could have been wearing berets, but they chose to jump separately from their berets. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. They they had the berets with them when they yeah, you normally have it in your smock. Yeah. But then they had some spares. So if they if they sent over a separate canister of berets, they clearly were intending to wear them. And lose some along the way. Otherwise, you know, if you're carrying it in your pocket, you wouldn't need it. So, surely more of them than just like two blokes out of whatever it is the hundred or so I, that I've got. If you look at the, the historical pictures, the only ones you see wearing berets are in rear areas. Right, Tim. Yeah. Can or, I just say? Afterwards. Yeah. I fully support what you're saying here, and everybody else is full of trouser filling an material. An yes, yeah. because there are some realities more real than mundane historical reality okay and british paras wear bloody berets and if you're going to particularly, go particularly uh, when one of them is sean connery as yeah, well and if everyone's yeah. going to go oh right historical reality blah 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 okay people have been talking about painting nanchnecks and they paint them in the most gaudy dressed up colors imaginable and i'm sure if they could they wore like that wore them like that mm. but after a few months of on campaign they would be in rags spanish army of flanders Tertios. Have you got that army, Simon? Is it Maybe. dressed in rags? Because it was famous for being dressed in rags. That's a historical reality. But you but don't do that. But the big problem with that, though, Adam, to be fair, is that, okay. that Sean Connery wasn't British in that Paris film. Look better in berets. Sean Connery looks better in a red bloody beret. So you can go on about historical reality as much as you want. But toy soldier playing, I want the one that looks cool. However, with you. However. Anthony Hopkins never wears a red beret in Bridgeton Bar. He's always yeah. in Swift, and that's why he's a better actor. <laughs> but does it, does he wear a red beret oh, in, um, in that thing where he eats people? Is that does he like because <laughs> it's Chianti? There's that's like sort of Gallic. No, Hannibal never wore red berets. You can still have 
the command figure in a red berry, they, they just make one or two of them, so they stand out even more. But the command figure is on a command base, and it's it's actually a non-player character. I want you know one that I get that's Sean Connery with a Sten gun yeah. because clearly all of them should have Sten guns as well, and there's never enough of those either. But then again, it's ten mil; it's a bit difficult to see. And uh, but they just should be more in berries and well, Sten gun range more sucks. figures. In, if they made they more of them in berries, Sten guns as well the parachutes. Special standard. Yeah. If I if they made more of them in berries, I'd buy more of those figures. The two either I either airborne issues Sten was had a wooden stock. That's right. Yeah, because because it didn't work that well. Simon, have you got um you, you chip in on this? Yeah, so I think I'm with you on this one because um even though they might not historically had the the hats, when you think of paratroopers, you think of a guy with a red hat. And when you and I used to play Force on Force, I picked up a whole bunch of British para troops for one of the random um, conflicts we were playing just because they were, you know, going uniform with a red beret and carrying a gun. Yes. How could you not find that? absolutely right. Yeah. And that was, um, that was clever marketing by what would have been Matchbox. Do you remember Matchbox who used yep. to be like, we can't believe, I can't believe it's not Airfix or whatever it was yeah. at the time when we were all growing up. And they did two, one box of modern British kind of Falklands era stuff. Mm. And, and they were really nice figures. It was almost the only box of sort of soft plastic modern, moderns they did. And I bought two of them and I painted one up with green berets for um, Marines and one with red berets as parrots because they they kind of look close enough when when I was that age to do them, and um, and pretty much all of them were in red berets. They weren't wearing um, hats and helmets and stuff. So that's a company that nailed its marketing and was perfectly geared to sell to um, to teenage boys who were watching this stuff on the telly. So in, you're in telling me you're going to start your Kickstarter campaign then, uh, Tim, to do uh, yeah. uh, World War Two paras in red berets. Exactly, and no. I think what we the, what the business opportunity is, is to get three or four figures that are exactly the same style as every other people's range. So you have a range of a hundred figures, divided into three or four, or maybe four or five. And there's some like Peter Pig fifteen mil. There's some like Bolt Action twenty mil. There's some like all the other different scales. But they're all wearing bloody berets. And then I think people would go, I want those because the sets I've been set don't have enough berets in them. And I, I think there's well, a we great get opportunity there. to do the theme tune. We could get Prince to do the thing tube. Yeah, absolutely. So, so what scale 2000, are you wanting them, Tim? What scale are you All wanting? All of them, them? mate. I, I don't really mind. As long as their hats are red, they could be any old scale they want. But Well, because the Plastic Soldier Company, they do theirs in 15 mil with um, berets on. Are they, all ten, are they all 15 mil with berets? Do they have loads of berets? They look, look to have loads of berets. Right, well, that could be the answer then. Maybe I need to start doing this in... Um, Buy this bloody army in 15 mil as well as the 10 and the 6 that I've already no, you're, you're missing well, Paris were famous for being quite tall, weren't they? So it probably worked Yeah, but the difference between 10 and 10 and 15 is quite tall, isn't it? They're quite big and stocky. So so look, that's my theory. Um, but I think you know we've all had a kind of chat about it. Let's just go around the um the room. And the question is, is the answer is um, I think you're an ass, or I don't think you're an ass. So Simon. I don't think you're an ass. I think the idea of paras with red hats is cool. Dave Saunders. Ass. <laughs> you think I'm an ass? Um, Tamsin. Andy Finkel. I don't think you're an ass, but I still think you're wrong. That's that's a legal lawyer's answer, isn't it? 
Peter. Thank you. I take that as a good it's just it, it, they, they wore helmets. They wore helmets, Adam. and then when they stopped being shot at, then they put the berry on. Adam. Well, weirdly enough, opposite to Andy, I think you're right, but I do kind of think you're an ass. <laughs> well, as the elephant death star of time hits the medium foot battle line of destiny, I see that's all we've got time for on this week's episode. So, goodbye, and we'll see you next week on I'm sorry, I think you're an ass. <laughs> Just one other bit. We're talking Paris. What? Only one range in 28 millimeters by British Airborne has a guy in a kilt. I, there were two guys at Arnhem in kilts from a glider pilot regiment. Well, it's glider pilots. That's different. That's glider pilots, definitely. Well, the, the, um, the artillery that was dropped with them didn't wear. I'm going to say it wouldn't be one of the parachutists wearing a kilt, would it? No. <laughs> that would be awkward, wouldn't it? That's a short oh, yeah. Is that your reserve shoot, sir? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> or something. I don't right. know, but don't 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 the to see me. Yeah. I've never seen a British Airborne collection somebody with, with a chicken. My first ever parachute <laughs> jump, jump, I did it with a Arnhem veteran who was re-qualifying to go and jump in the one of the memorials. That's good. <laughs> Is there any more to that story? No, it's like you just said, follow it's me, just jumping it. out the plane. Yeah. You're like going, it was like talking about, like talking about uh, glider pilots. I was watching Antiques Roadshow last night, and they had some medals and stuff from a guy who had been a glider pilot in the um, 1945. And his glider landed in the ditch, and it was carrying a tank. And the tank flew forward out of the glider and landed in the ditch. They should have put red berets on the Hamel cars, really, shouldn't they? Um, and, and on that note, um, it's so. Look, I think we've um, we've survived that first feature. It's um, I, th- I think it's got potential. Um, it's got potential. We've got room to improve it, quite possibly. But um, we will probably return next week with um, with another episode of I think you're an ass. And um, and whilst we're on that subject, um, I'll pay the compliment back, Andy. It must be time for your quiz. Right, uh, Mr. Finkel, um, uh, whatever your washing machine instant, um, is that still an ongoing scenario? The situation has no. been, been done and dusted? Thank, yes, thank goodness, yeah. Yes, thank right. goodness, right. Well, well it hits us with the answers and questions, yeah. Well, last week's question was all about mad science, and there were three questions. The first one was, what was Archimedes' iron claw? It was just that was the uh, grabber pulling up the um, ships in the siege. That's right. Sorry, yeah. 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 Land base, wasn't it? As well, it was on the yeah. dock or something. Yeah, yeah. must have been on a bit the, like uh, those harbor. things you see at fairgrounds where you're trying to win a teddy bear and the, you try and maneuver the arm over and grab the, the teddy bear and lift it out. But uh, instead of teddy bears, they were trying to do this with Roman ships, and apparently they did actually sink quite a few of them. Better than the teddy bear one, though, wouldn't it? They never work at all. Um, yeah, they did a demo of it, didn't they, Dave? There's a, there's a TV program. They're actually in the um, in the port at Syracuse, and they. Uh, they have this thing Built that it. build something to pull a, pull a trireme out of the water. Right. Okay. I'd be more impressed to pull, a, pull the teddy bear out of one of those 
fun yeah. doing things. <laughs> yeah, that's more of a challenge. <laughs> but of course, it, yeah. yeah, well, ships are easier. They're bigger and there's bits sticking out you can grab hold of. They're probably a lot easier. Um, it's, it's a load of facts. It's a fabricated story. Well, it's a good, I, I like that story anyway. Right, question two. Which nation in World War I developed a steam-powered flame-throwing tank? USA. Correct. It was modelled on the um, original British tank, but they modified it. Well, that's right. Yes, it did actually. It looked actually looked like a proper World War One tank. And well, so, had, so they they took the First World War British tank. They thought the way to improve this is to make it steam powered <laughs> and a flamethrower. Well, flamethrower, obviously, obviously. I'm with well, that steam powered thing. Brilliant. Yeah. Well, sounds cool, I still, but I'm just not sure. Yeah, I still really like the idea of the steam powered submarines. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, it makes yeah. sense yeah. when you think of the um, the big steam-powered things at the time were the roll rollers. And yeah. so they were the ones that actually had the best engines at that time. That but could you'd actually have a fasting submarine, though, wouldn't you? I would imagine. Wouldn't it just be like bubbling coming out all the way? That would sort of give it away? I don't know. <laughs> this continuous stream of bubbles, like, hmm, I wonder where the submarine is. <laughs> I wonder where the submarine is. Yeah, there. it was. Andy, sorry. Well, let's get back to question number three. Go on. Right. Question three. What unusual material was intended to be used in the construction of the aircraft carrier in Project Habakkuk in World War II? Iceberg. Yeah. Basically, a stuff called Pickrite, Pickrite, which was made, it was designed by a guy called Mr. Pike, and you mixed it with wood pulp and froze it, and this apparently made it practically bulletproof, and they, 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 the idea was they were running short of metal, so they wanted to build an aircraft carrier. So we thought, well, up in Canada, there's loads of wood pulp, there's loads of ice. We freeze all this stuff, and they made a small model of it, and it worked. When they tried to scale it up, it didn't work quite so well. But to prove the qualities of Picrite, they actually had at one of the Quebec conferences where all the leaders got together a demonstration, and they got a block of ice and a block of this stuff, and... Um, Matt Batten, who was in on this for special, you know, forces and stuff, took a shot with his pistol against the block of ice and shattered it. Took a shot against his block of pikerite, and the bullet bounced off and grazed Admiral King on the knee. But surely it would have a sort of limited theatre of deployment, and a lot of the, the carrier actions in the Second World War were in the middle of the Pacific. Yeah, well, well, well yes, it was the it was the convoy defence. Oh, yeah, yeah, North yeah, Atlantic. Yeah. Yeah, the idea was, you know, we want somewhere to, to, to land our planes when they're fighting it. But then, you know, some, some design flaws crept in people because uh, the head of the Admiralty says, we want this thing to be torpedo-proof, so it has to be 40 metres thick. And um, the, the, the fleet arm wanted to land heavy bombers on it, so it had to have a 2,000-foot-long runway. And then they discovered that there's a some kind of plastic flow or something, and the effect of this thing was that because of the size, whatever, it would gradually sag and sink. So to make it work, you'd have to put a refrigeration plant. But the refrigeration plant used so much kit that you could have actually built a fleet of aircraft carriers from the kit used. So they basically gave up on this thing in 1944. Right, in 1944, yeah, when I guess, yeah. Well, yes, I don't know quite why it took them so long. But look, it, <laughs> it sounds like a, a fascinating, fascinating development. It, well, reading about this is just hilarious, but it's completely bonkers. Okay, well, yeah. that, that sounds like um, completely bonkers. Sounds like a good cue for the next part of the quiz. Question 
hit us with this week's questions. Right. This week's questions are, um, did, because we're having some bad weather, I thought these are all about storms. So question one, which Norman leader's soothsayer was lost at sea during a storm, causing his master to say that if the soothsayer couldn't foresee the storm, he was obviously no great loss. In question two, what iconic name from their history did the Japanese give to the storm which scattered Kublai Khan's invasion fleet? Okay. Uh, question three, in the year 255 BCE, a summer storm struck a Roman fleet and over 600 ships. And over 600 ships, including more than 300 warships, were sunk with huge loss of life. And what distinctive feature of the warships contributed to so many sinking? They weren't made out of ice and wood pulp, were they? No. That no, might be the answer. You'll have to wait till next week. That could be. We'll find have out. to wait till next week to find out. Okay, well, look, that was Andy's quiz. And... Um, in in a, in a remarkably brave um, attempt, we're going to attempt to have even another feature in um, in this week. And after our sort of vague success of talking about that one aspect of something a couple of weeks ago, um, it's not stuck in my memory, obviously well enough for me to remember, but we definitely talked about something in, in some depth. One of the things that's been suggested weather. online, uh, weather, that was it, weather. And, and that's even the theme of your quiz. My God, it does all hang together, doesn't it? That's remarkable. But... Um, but we, we thought we'd have a, a general you know, chewing of the fat on the, the subject of morale rules in wargaming. You know? and, and I think over, certainly over my wargaming lifetime, um, they've, they've kind of come and gone or, or evolved and not, certainly in the sort of mass battle ancient stuff that, that we do, but, but in, in also other things as well. And, and the world sort of, my world seems to have almost be summarised by a, moving from the 50 different factor WRG fifth and sixth um, edition morale checks that, that were a key part of the game to a lot of modern games don't really seem to have a specific morale mechanism at all. Um, it's just sort of subsumed into, into everything else. Um, although there are some, some pretty notable exceptions, but, but for something that is such a key part of how, armies fought or continued fighting or, or won and lost it's it's an interesting or potentially an interesting debate as to to why that change to to not make it a discrete feature of the game may have happened or, or or maybe even you know that's that's me just having a very very narrow kind of focus on it and and there are other rule sets where it it does play a much bigger part but, but i don't know who wants to um looking around looking around the screen who wants to to kick us off with a a theory um, or a, a different viewpoint, right? Simon, you've um, you've stuck your hand up there. What's what's your kind of world of morale? What's your morale history? So I've played, you know, from the quite a few different games. So a game like DBM, where morale was quite sort of abstract, but you had the cohesion type of effect or the the, the quick kill hits. Um, games like One Forty Thousand, where uh, morale or One Fantasy Battle, where morale had a very intrinsic way the game played. So depending on some armies, they were almost impossible to break because they had no morale, where other ones, you basically look, boo it, said boo at them. The whole army ran away, which is great fun if you've travelled 800 kilometres for a competition. Um, 
what I've found over the last few years, i found it depends on what scale you're playing at. So if you're playing an army size game, which I know we've talked about a little bit before, so say like an ADLG game where you've got an army you're playing with, whether it's on a six foot by four foot table or smaller, is it immaterial? If you're playing an army size game, you want the morale to be a little bit more abstract because you just want it to flow quicker. If you're playing a smaller, um, like a unit size game, so say force on force or ambush alley and all that, it had a very detailed morale system because it then allowed you to reflect the very disparate troop types you'd have. So um, force on force was a, a game where you could do asymmetric warfare, where you could have highly professional, highly trained special forces troops or normal uh, military versus your ragtag militias and all that. So you can get that very highly motivated, but as soon as things go wrong, they all run away, top of armies, versus you know, the iconic SAS troops who go in, two of them, know what they're doing, highly motivated. You know, no matter what happens, they deliver the mission, get out, and all is good. And so really, for me, it, was, it depends on what size your game you're playing with, do where you want the detail in. I, th I think actually maybe, you know, force on force, I think, Peter, you played quite a lot of Flames of War as well, didn't you? And um, yeah, in the day. And Flames of that that was one of the sets where, again, correct me if I'm wrong, but morale wasn't a specific mechanism, but it was rolled in with um, effective combat effectiveness. Um, you know, the higher quality troops were just harder to kill, were they? Or something yeah, like it's it it came in um, a number of ways in both. Um, you know, from when you hit the tanks about their willingness to get back in if they've been sort of like shook up a bit. So, or even to the point of uh, the army breaking because of the morale. And so it, it wasn't specifically called out, but it was intrinsically in the roles about how they'd actually receive different things. And it certainly gave it a lot of flavor. So you got certain troops which were, you know, steadfast defenders and uh, others that were very good on the sort of like impact and charging in sort of thing. Um, and uh, others where, you know, you've just got a lot of troops, but they're really shoddy morale. Um, I think the oddest one was the Italians, which uh, you'd actually do a roll at the start to see whether they're going to be good or bad troops. And depending on the role was to how they could be, um, which I think was a bit extreme. I, I remember playing, I think, Clive once and he had Italians and uh, uh, they basically walked off the table before we even got to Cebu. Um, but um, it's, yeah, it's, it's very different. I quite liked it because then you could focus down. I actually remember winning a couple of games because of uh, it affected how people deployed. So from the different scenarios as well, you had to actually think about it because if people deployed the wrong troops to start off with, then you focus down with, say, artillery and targeted certain key ones. The rest of the army didn't want to turn up. Was that a rule? I say the difference there being that morale wasn't done through a separate mechanism. It was just baked into overall combat effectiveness maybe that's kind of one of the the changes yeah. or evolutions uh, yeah, i think you see that more and more yeah it's, it's, it's when you talk to like herve for adlg it's kind of baked in you know for uh, like heavy troops versus light troops and you know slightly different elite versus poor so as supposed to be a, a specific thing it's baked in to the piece because um as simon was saying you have a, a bit more of a flowing game at that point um but it gives you flavors. I mean, I, I suppose you can go the other extremes and have one for each, but 
that boils down to the point that you'd want that for individual units because otherwise no one would go anywhere. Okay. And anyone else? I think it's um the change has been it's been part of that massive change in war game rules in the late 80s, early 90s from going from a bottom up to top down type thing. Remember when you first started playing, morale was seen as key and you had morale tests to see whether the troops carry on fighting or whether they would charge or stand or blah, 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 blah. That at the time made a lot of sense. But I remember reading um, Barker's blurb to DBA when he was talking about, we modelled this and we modelled that. And I've sort of come to realise that, do we need to do that? What we need is the outcome, not the process. But, but did and, it come from like role-playing games? Was it a crossover from the uh, Dungeons and Dragons thing where you do morale test about whether you can do X, Y, Oh, no, no, no. The other way around. Dunge yeah. Dungeons and Dragons would have learned it from War Game Draws. Because um, well, War Game Draws started doing it in the late 60s, early 70s. Um, and it was all part of that process of um, very early War Game Draws. You had sort of like chuck a dice to see if hit, chuck a dice to see if they die. And then it's, well, we need to model different weapons. And what else is, oh, morale is important. We need to model morale in the game. So you had reaction te morale tests and reaction tests. Um, and they've sort of, now I think games designers look more at what are the outcomes that we're looking for and how do we get to that outcome? Um, so discrete morale tests have more or less gone by the by. And it's like similar things like any sort of like set of rules that, throw to hit, throw to wound, throw to save. There are just better, quicker, easier ways of getting that outcome than throwing three dice. And I think there are just better, quicker, easier ways um, for modelling morale than a discrete... But, because don't get me wrong, I sometimes I used to really enjoy them. I remember one time I had a unit, it's plain sick, the unit of Indian elephants that um, I had to check to charge and they went impetuous and hit some Aztec Eagle warriors in a flank and it was hilarious and it was brilliant and really funny but it was like it did slow things down so much and I tried playing um, Shock of Impact a few times as well and not only did they have a test to charge and the opponents had a test to stand but you then had the 30 yard test to see if you test high, test to charge home and at the time it made sense but now I'm thinking bloody hell that's they, like those shock different... of impact rules. Those shock of impact rules. You were going through like a list of thirty factors, weren't you? you yeah, but you were that rolling was, three that dice not, to get. That, yeah, that was seen as not strange at the time. Whereas now, yeah, no wonder they played so bloody slowly. Yeah, yeah, it was just running through that long, long list, and then it became a game of can I um, engineer all the positive yeah. factors that are going to stop me failing this kind of weird random test. Mm -hmm. And um, and then when it started going wrong, it started going completely wrong. I think uh, some years after I'd stopped playing sixth, and I think I'd gone through seventh and was playing DBM. I think for real retro purposes, I I had a game of of sixth with um with a mate of mine, and I think he played still played occasionally a bit of it. And and the whole you know six foot wide battle, and I had twenty five mil Romans, and he had some assassins or something, and uh, basically he started the game with um. A sacred standard and two generals or something on one side of the table with his elite cataphracts and they wound themselves up with all these pluses to get impetuous which gave them extra factors in combat and that that basically charged in and then this collapse just rippled along my line and and the game was was over and we were like did we used to do this for real you know was this a was this a thing and we were taking a lot of time rolling tests but yeah i think that that point adam about 
it's got sucked into uh, that that wider look about what are outcomes and what's important in terms of of game outcome um and it initially got simplified from from the old wrg one to five one to six actually with the lots of factors then seventh kind of moved it to a was it called a waiver test with just one dice i think that that you you know it really collapsed it down it was like roll three four five six and you're fine or or not and then then it just completely went away in in dbm and it just got sucked into to combat effectiveness and and there were no separate tests for for breaking down this real mechanistic um you know this is a thing so we need to roll some dice to to simulate it part of the game because imagine playing ADLG where you sort of like you had a combat and you had your opposed dice rolls and I've lost. So I've now got to do another dice roll and look up more factors to see whether I stand or whether I recoil or wherever I flee. Right. Yeah, no, rolling. Sometimes I think, oh, for old time's sake, I would love to have a game of gush. And then I think, oh, I probably wouldn't actually. No. Um, um, in DLG, you... I do like it where the elephants get tested as to where they run to. Now that's funny. <laughs> I think yeah. Simon had the yeah. best win on that way. It ran up the hill and killed uh, one of the oppositions and get, gave him a um, draw. Uh, but I think if you were, you know, if you were, if you were retrofitting old style um, morale tests into ADLG, you'd say right if if a unit destroys its opponent, the, their friends who are on either side of them would immediately roll a dice each and if they failed that you know the the number they would drop a level um or or something and, and it's like so you're doing an extra layer of dice rolling and mechanics to to sit to assess the state of adjacent troops when actually what happens is now it's like well if you've destroyed someone, you're going to have an opportunity to turn on their flank and, and really screw them under the rules, or you're going to get an overlap, um, which will give you an advantage. So you don't need to layer on an extra thing of, oh, and here's an extra test to see if something affects their friends or whatever, because it's, it's is just that baked more, into the core system. But, but is that more that the systems are all acknowledging that it's all happening at the same time? Because some of the early systems I look at, would be, oh, we do this one, then we do this one, and then you can have that knock-on effect. Whereas something like ADLG, it's assuming that all these combats are happening at the same time in that no, group. I, I think, so I think then you wouldn't have that knock-on effect, and that's why you have it in the next turn, where you have the advantage of the overlap or whatever. But the, the next turn thing is an entirely artificial construct in how the game works together. The, the point no, is, if you knock a hold in the enemy I line... ADLG is an I-go-you-go system. Yeah. It, that that turn concept, but the fact you've knocked a hole in the line does cause a problem for the troops who are either side of a hole. You know they they yeah. are disadvantaged, but you don't need to have a separate dice roll mechanism to to do that. the The game itself kind of gives you a a disadvantage to to that. Um, anyway, so so I think it it just it's kind of been sucked into people going well. Actually, the outcome is this. Or, you know, the loss of morale doesn't need to be another random factor or it doesn't need to be tested. Um, I don't, has anybody else got any other things to chip in? Um, well, I, I found it was, um, when, when I used to play Fog, there were a couple of memorable uh, morale results, which I think uh, tweaked the game a bit. I remember one particular game where I, it was actually Fog R, where I was charging some pretty average troops into some better quality Spanish cavalry simply because I had to 
uh, block a gap. And in two consecutive rounds of combat, I dropped them and then broke them. And it was completely against the the, the laws of normal die, die averages, but it was quite entertaining to see it happen. Um, and that kind of thing, when you get a dramatic result, which you weren't expecting, uh, was quite good. Now, you might say, well, you could get the same with a 6-1 on ADLG or ADLGR, and possibly you could, but um, the fact that you went from no hope to breaking the enemy in two goes was was, was quite spectacular. Now, and so, there is a, a drawback of not of having the supreme morale rules. We're used to games now where if you break a third or a half of whatever the opponent's army, you win. And that gives an artificial, well, I need that one, that one, and that one. And your entire focus comes on comes on to killing those three units, um, which is a very artificial way to try and win a battle. Um, because that's not the way an army would break, really. It would sort of like crumble away. So that whole having tests rolling out might seem to be more realistic. But um, it... I, I, I just, I'm just not sure it's worth the extra hassle. And it's also, again, generals don't fight battles like we fight battles, really. So having a game where that's what my plan is and taking them out, I'm kind of happy with. Yeah, I suppose if you look at that, that fog, um, if you look at that fog model, you've got a combat outcome, which is two sets of dice rolling against each other. And then as a result of that, the losing side takes a, a separate, dice roll test and so that can either multiply the swing you know you can get you can get a lucky win which is then compounded by a lucky um morale result but more often than not um the the effect of the morale rules because the morale rules are based on probability as well you know mm. if, if you get an unlikely win with in the combat mechanic you then move into a morale mechanic who which is going to naturally flatten um the overall outcome towards um more of an average the more dice you roll the more average it's going to be so so i think it makes the having splitting it into two separate mechanics which have a multiple multiplier effect on each other can get you some more extreme results but but it's at the end of the day it's just going to make it harder for good troops to to really do badly um, because they will have a sort of saving attempt with morale to kind of mitigate um, a bad a bad set of combat dice. But, but you're still playing with probabilities, aren't you? But it's still it a very literal... It depends on what you're looking to model, and it yeah. depends on how much extra time and how much extra faff that adds on. Is it yeah. worth it? And if it is worth it, fine. If yeah. And again, and that's different for different individuals, and that's why everybody plays different games, and that's why... Yeah. Um, we can sort of like argue quite, quite passionately for all that we like, but it's mm. yeah, it's. Um, I think I've gone with the general trend of wargaming of simpler is usually better these days. Mm. I think also yeah. depends on combat doctrine and, and era. So, for example, failing a morale in ancient might be different to failing a morale in a World War II context. Failing morale in a World War II context might just be hit the dirt and do nothing rather than run away. Yeah. And that might have a different dynamic on how the battle develops. Yeah, it's when you look at the Ivalides rules, a chain of command, I think I use the same, same sort of mechanism as sharp practice, where the individual units in combat, some dice will cause kills, 
so figure removal. The other diarrhea hits will cause shock, which builds up and when the unit reaches a certain amount of shock, it becomes pinned, it becomes less effective. When it accumulates even more shock, twice as many points of shock as, it, as there are figures remaining, it breaks. And then you have the overall force morale, where if a unit breaks or is wiped out or a leader's wounded, you roll, a bad thing happens, which can reduce force morale, which when you get to very low levels, affects how many command dice you've got. I think that, that, that works quite well, because you could actually have it soon that hasn't had anybody killed, but it's just accumulated enough shock from enemy firepower that it's broken. Got and it. I think it's possible to have quite clever, cute morale rules that do reflect morale without having a separate morale phase like that. Or one thing in um, PBI and in ideology I really like is it's a lot harder to get troops to move out of cover. Um, so when you're moving around, it's sort of like so moving through cover is fine. But if you then say to them, and they'll go out into the open. It's a lot harder to get that done. And that's part of the movement rather than part morale. But it's quite a cute way of sort of like reflecting people didn't like standing out in the open when there were lots of bullets flying around. I think there's, a, there's an interesting theory about looking at, you know, those sorts of mechanics in the Lardy's rules, uh, uh, you know, the sharp practice and stuff like that, is that what those mechanics do is they create a, a, a stronger narrative you know, they're they're less about here is something on on the spectrum towards chess in that you're maneuvering pieces around to get an outcome, and actually this is a you're creating something that you can talk about, you could write a book about afterwards. You're creating a story with with heroes and and dramatic events that that have got quite a literal, um, and that's maybe kind of one of the objectives of of the game. What what the outcome is, you know, if if you go back to the other one, I think we probably all played a bit of of saga being literally named after the Viking sagas and and as a game that you know I, th I think we've all talked about it it does suffer if you play it overly competitively or if one of you is playing it overly competitively but but as a beer and pretzels game dramatic mad stuff happens and and they give it they give those dramatic mad things names um, you know that that's core to the game so so I think yeah if you if your objective is to create a game that that has a heroic narrative afterwards having strong mechanisms based on morale that allow heroics to happen is is clearly quite key um but for for the biggest sort of mass battle games that's that's not quite the outcome um because it's it's just not what you're trying to achieve you're trying to achieve a sort of chess with with a random factor um component to it of, of that way of managing a large a large battle I think it's quite right, Tim, because I think in Saga you're talking about the fate of individual uh, un individual figures. And, you know, sometimes you've got a small unit of three or four Hearthguard and they fight really well and carve their way through the enemy. That's the kind of epic story that would have come come out of battles when they were recounting it over the, you know, the, the, the fire at home later when, when they were telling all their folks about it. But, but the aim of the game is to give us that story to talk about afterwards. Whereas it's not, you know, yeah. if, if we have a if we have a mass battle ancients game, and the story is this unit was unkillable and carved its way through and you know and took down this, that's actually a game that we all go, yeah, they were just lucky on dice. That's not really it. You know, you want a game of my grand strategy worked. Um, or, you know, I, I overwhelmed the right, I punched through the middle, I you know this sort of thing. You don't want they were heroes that is a good story it's a good thing in the pub and 
and you do tell it but but we all know at the heart of it that's just like that's a dice thing really it's not that those little soldiers weren't particularly heroic in the real world they didn't do anything more and, and that's not what you sort of expect out of those games but i think there's one bit here that we've sort of, sort of touched on but not actually said which is the more maneuver elements that you have in a game the more abstracted you need for morale to be so adlg where you've got 20 or 30 maneuver units having to do morale checks every turn Every combat for those would be detrimental. You don't want that. Rolling it into the damage levels, cohesion of a unit works there. When you've got four, I say four or five units, like, well, you might have a few, have up to eight units in chain of command. Yeah, it's, it's not unreasonable to have to do morale checks occasionally. If the bad things happen, rolls are occasional. It's only when a team gets wiped out or breaks, which isn't is gonna take quite a while. It's not going to be free yeah. that frequent. Okay. Yeah. Dave, you've well, been um oh you've been waving around in the corner. What, what I was gonna say um Bataille Empire, the Napoleonic ADLG, that's got a morale tech and test in it. And that, and how and do you think they work? Is it more appropriate for that sort of period? All the time. Yeah. <laughs> we play, we just forget about it. By accident, well, rather than means, because we haven't done a morale test for years and years. I've played Peter a few times and went, oh, yeah, we forgot to do morale tests. Because every time you get shots, you have to do, someone has to do morale testing that. And I think that does bring the flag. Yeah, it's, it's basically um, to signify the whole shock of the uh, bullets going in, because it's, it was such a sort of like uh, a wedge of bullets coming in and hitting you, wasn't it? Um, and once we actually played the game properly, didn't we, Dave, and actually had the morale in, it actually made a, a, a lot bigger effect because uh, when you read the rules, they say quite often in that period, people didn't end up closing for the bayonet. And like, you know, when we're playing ADLG, where basically coming in with swords and everything else, um, Hervey was trying to simulate with the Napoleonics is that, you know, you come in, you put the fire, the amount of uh, lead going along was quite heavy and quite, enough of a shock factor that it caused units to um, run after a couple of rounds of shooting. So the, the fact of the morale um, and the, how they were drilled and how it was trained becomes quite a, a serious effect. I read somewhere that in the Napoleonic Wars, there were a lot of bayonet charges, bayonet fights, in that, as Peter was alluding to, before bayonets were crossed, either the attackers would grind to a halt or the defenders would run away. No, that, that's going to be a chapter on the book I'm, I'm in the process of writing at the moment about the Napoleonic Wars, about tactics and the history on the basis of, um, of, of our earlier podcasts. So no, I think that's, that's definitely part of it. One morale effect I really like that you never, ever need rules for in any game, but it does work in quite a lot of games, is the morale of your opponent. Because more than once I've been playing a game where I've run a combat really luckily that I shouldn't have won. My opponents launched a devastating attack and just threw a one and I threw a six. And after that, the game's still in the balance. It's all to play for. But because they've had a couple of bad dice rows, they're like, oh, bloody. And even though the game's still at a 50 50 stage, I've already won because they've kind of given up and they stopped trying. So you've still got your morale of your human opponent to attack as well. Or they hyper focus on one corner. Try playing doubles with Ian Mackay, because after about two games, he's completely given up. And you're sitting there going, give me the bloody dice. Look, we've won a combat. We're doomed, Mr. Mallory. We're doomed. We're doomed. We're doomed. 
Look, on, on the, well, I think if anybody has invoked um, the we're doomed um, clarion cry mm -hmm. from Dad's mm -hmm. army, that's that's probably telling us all that it's time to wrap up, really. That seems an appropriate time. So so we've had a good old go at Chantry about morale. Um, hopefully that's been, been interesting, informative. We've tried our new feature, and um, I think I've just about got away with... No, I think on balance I was an arse, wasn't I? Um, so we'll be coming back with that next week. There'll be some more answers from Andy's quiz. And um, I Would guess you be just wearing your red berry? Of course, of course, oh. all the time now. And and speaking in a Sean Connery accent as well. See if I can sustain the whole podcast doing doing bad Sean Connery impressions um sporadically. Can that, you shift not, not going there? <laughs> we're just not going there at all. No. Um so look, I, I think on on that note, unless anybody's got any um any final closing comments to throw in before we wrap up for this um this week's podcast. Um other than that, goodbye everybody, and we'll see you next week. Goodbye. 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 Bye. Bye. Andy, you know you said you were on mute. Mute. <laughs> nah. Nah. No, 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 no. I think this is great. We've developed a new thing for Zoom. We've all been on um, lockdown for a year, and finally we can now say, Andy, you're not on mute. You're not on mute, mate. That's it. Are we um? Are we going to be a town council meeting or something like that? Is that the thing that's going to come out of this? You don't have the legal right to do this. Yes. No, we don't. Damn it, I said you. I'm going to you have no authority here, Andy Finkel. <laughs> that's the trouble. I don't have any authority. <laughs> Some section of the statutes of the old Right. Does anyone have a good divorce lawyer? Yeah, oh, you. Oh, yeah, no, yeah, I don't do divorce. What are your wife's looking for?